This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 59. And this week, we've got an interview uh, with Beth Cantor. Uh, now, Beth is a well-known uh, expert, um, a speaker, author, trainer, uh, and sort of fountain of knowledge on all things non-profit technology, digital transformation, and organisational culture. Um, she's written uh, three books to date, um, worked with numerous very well-known organisations that you'll all have heard of, um, and uh, has a popular blog where she writes about lots of things to do with technology and digital and, and organisational culture. Um, so it was great to have a chance to to chat to Beth, uh, and we had a, a really good conversation. Um, so we kind of talked uh, a bit about starting, or well, we started off looking at kind of tech as it is now, and and sort of digital transformation. So um, thinking about the impact that social media had had on nonprofit organisations in the time that Beth's been working, the ways in which that's kind of transformed the ability to communicate uh, and also to organise, um, and then sort of thinking about whether that had enabled you know new models to emerge of sort of looser more networked um uh, forms of kind of social action and whether that presented a challenge to to existing non-profits um we talked about some of the challenges that come um as we kind of move into an attention economy where you know attention's scarce and and lots of people are competing for it and then that kind of creates perverse incentives and what that might mean for for non-profits uh, and also the kind of um, stories that we've seen about organ- uh, companies and uh, tech platforms designing purposefully for, for addictive behaviours and, and kind of what we should think about those in relation to the work of non-profits and kind of, you know, the broader health and well-being of people who work in them. Um, we talked about kind of leadership uh, in non-profits as, it, as regards tech and sort of what role non-profit leaders need to play in kind of helping the sector as a whole kind of engage with technology and really harness the benefits of it and sort of face up some of the challenges. Um, then we, we talked at reasonable length sort of specifically about artificial intelligence because it's something that both Beth and I are kind of interested in and done work on. So, you know, we talked about the some good examples of the ways in which nonprofits uh, had started to use forms of artificial intelligence to, to deliver on their mission more effectively. Um, we also talked about the way in which they were perhaps using uh, the technology sort of more internally to to kind of drive efficiencies and and uh, in terms of their kind of processes and, and operations we talked specifically about kind of chatbots and conversational ai and what kind of new opportunities and challenges those might those raise um we talked about the the importance of uh partnerships between non-profits and tech companies and kind of what that might look like going into the future uh, and then i got some thoughts from beth on what she thought the the non-profit workplace might look like in you know a decade or two's time and kind of what sort of work we might all be doing in it so um loads of really interesting stuff so without further ado let's go into the conversation uh, and i'll be back at the end just for a bit of housekeeping and tidying up
Okay, great. So I am here with Beth Cantor. Hi there, Beth. Hi. And Beth, well, you've got many, many uh, different hats that you wear, but you are uh, well known as a non-profit innovator, thought leader, author, speaker, uh, and kind of go-to person on all things non-profit, digital and technology. But um, maybe you could kind of give us a, a little bit of a sort of potted background in your own words about, you know, who you are and kind of what you, how do you come to these issues? Um, sure. And, and so thank you so much for uh, inviting me here uh, to, to have this. Uh, I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Um, so I've worked in the nonprofit sector over 35 years. And um, in the last 25, I have worked specifically on nonprofit technology. And so I think I was one of the kind of early people that was out there uh, helping nonprofits get on the internet when, and the World Wide Web. Remember when it was called that? And uh, nonprofits were saying the World Wide What? <laughs> And so I've been lucky to have a front row seat at the creation of a field, nonprofit um, technology, and have always um, worked in being a trainer and a consultant to help organizations shift their culture or, or really to help them embrace these new technologies so that they are um, mission driven. I've written a couple of books, The Network Nonprofit, Measuring the Network Nonprofit, and Happy Healthy Nonprofit. And I primarily work with um, foundations and uh, nonprofits. Great. Um, so yeah, there's an enormous amount to to sort of pick up on in, in certainly what I know of your work. But um, I mean, maybe you could sort of uh, say, you know, if we we start kind of winding it, it back a bit um, in terms of the the, the earlier uh, stuff that you've done on technology. I mean, what have you seen in the time that you've been working with with nonprofits and funders in terms of the impact of of technology and sort of particularly things like social media? I mean, how much and, and kind of in what ways do you think that's changed the game for them? Well, I have to step back and I always like reflect on this. And I see, I've seen changes over maybe two, now three digital eras. And I like to think of, you know, uh, getting on the internet as that first era. So the big change was nonprofits having to digitize, go from paper to you know, digital websites. And so, you know, that was a disruptive shift. And the next thing that came on the um, horizon was social media back in 2003, 2004, when I started blogging. And here, uh, the big shift was um, from broadcast media, really to person to person and really leveraging those network effects. And now as we're entering kind of the age of automation and artificial intelligence, we'll be making, um, a shift into like figuring out automated tasks based on data. And I think that the commonality in these, um, you know, when there is a disruptive technology, I've seen or organizations kind of go through different phases. First, they, oh, it's only a fad. There's kind of resistance. We have a group of early adopters. There are some early kind of spectacular successes that get a lot of um, attention. And then people in the nonprofit sector and organizations begin to adopt and then it becomes more mature and, 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 and systemized. Um, as now in social media, we're kind of at more at that mature level, having had that great success, I think with, you know, the Arab spring back in 2009 and then a little bit later with fundraising, you know, the AL ice bucket challenge. I think those kind of big moments kind of capture people's attention and really shift the field into saying, Oh my God, there's something here. And, and do you get a sense, uh, you know, at this point in time that n nonprofits have, have kind of 
come round to to thinking that you don't you can't really think about a lot of this stuff in terms of it being about technology or tech issues and actually you know tech is something that now just kind of cuts across pretty much everything they do and what their their you know the people and communities they're working with need so actually they they really need to grapple with this even if they don't think they themselves are sort of particularly tech orientated organizations Yes, I mean, it's not really about the technology, because in many cases, the technology has been around. It's just like artificial intelligence is over 50 years old. It's just now becoming more accessible because it's being embedded in different programs. We have more data, we have more computing power, and we're starting to see more of it being integrated. So um, I, I think of Clay Shirky's quote, uh, in here comes everybody, you know, uh, the technology get doesn't get socially interesting until it becomes boring. And so, and that's when we get over the kind of shiny object syndrome and focusing on the technology and really focusing on like, how does this change the way we're working? And how does this change our relationship with our stakeholders and audiences? And in terms, of, yeah, I think that thing about, you know, Clay Shirky's point there is absolutely right. You know, it's at that point in which it becomes boring and cheap. The, the technology genuinely is transformative because everybody can can easily get hold of it and then and then use it. With something like social media, I mean, in what ways have you seen that impact on on individual nonprofits, but also kind of at a, at a sector level? Has it, I mean, is it, you know, kind of rebalanced uh, the playing field between large and small organizations or is it kind of fundamentally in your view changed the way in which some organizations operate you know i think in the early days of social media and i'm talking about like from 2003 to maybe 2009 2010 maybe even as late as 2012 13 i think um it, uh, uh the, the technology was very democratized and even small organizations could get attention and could have big wins um I think since it's become as more organizations have adopted and more and it's become quote boring, it's again we it's a little bit harder to cut through. And I think also with kind of the evolution of certain platforms like Facebook become, you know, advertising, you know, social me- social network advertising has become really important strategy. And of course that takes resources and, and expertise. It's maybe become a little bit less <laughs> leveled. But that's not to say that there can be um uh, you know, a lot of uh, amazing stories about the power of social media, uh, both people giving to organizations and also people to people giving um, or people to pe- people powered activism. I mean, just sit back and think about like Greta Thunberg, <laughs> what we witnessed a couple of weeks, weeks ago and, and how that one person has like inspired literally change around the world, hundreds and thousands of people and drawing attention to this issue. And I think that is in part due to social media and the and the way that we are transferring information people to people yeah i'm i absolutely agree and i think that that thing of being person to person but also that you can have kind of many many communication rather than you know one many or having to have somebody as a sort of centralized um uh, gatekeeper for for the communication is is really important and one of the most interesting things about the impact and i just picking up on your example there about kind of greta thunberg and and you know extinction rebellion and the wider kind of climate crisis movement do you do you see that increasing focus and emphasis on kind of grassroots network digital movements being the places that people are increasingly looking to for for social change or where they look to kind of engage with issues being something that nonprofits should be excited about or slightly worried about because it, you know, can they harness it or is it something that's going to kind of bypass them and and leave them looking slightly old fashioned? (laughs) 
That's a great question. I think I don't, you know, in my personal opinion, they should be on board and be harnessing it and be excited about it. Um, but of course, you know, I think, um, uh, and I wrote about this in my book, the network nonprofit, we talked about how, um, we really have to shift in the sector from scarcity thinking where, you know, one organization can do it all. <laughs> the problems that exist out there are far greater than one organization can solve. So we really have to take a systems approach and collaborate across organizations and really look at the problem. And if we can, and if, you know, a girl in Sweden can mobilize thousands and thousands of people, we need to, we need to embrace that. And how can we fit in the system and how can we support that? I mean, I know, Personally, and we've seen a lot of that in the U.S., I, I imagine, uh, just because of the political climate. And I know, like, um, I, I first heard about the, the climate march uh, about a year ago when my kids wanted to, uh, where my kids participated. You know, right in their high school walked out on, I think it was last fall, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe it was even longer ago, 18 months ago. Um, so, um so anything that is attracting the attention of youth and any ways that um, nonprofits can do that, I think they're going to be more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And have you, do you, have you seen some good examples of you know, nonprofits or, or I guess funders that you feel are either learning and adopting those, those principles or finding ways to support organizations that demonstrate them when they, when they do emerge? Because it, it seems to me there's, there's, you know, there's a real danger of kind of culture clash between between more traditional kind of structured centralized organizations and these new sort of decentralized non-hierarchical organizations and it could be brilliant but equally it could work really badly yeah yeah i mean again i wrote about that in the network nonprofit and we call these new types of organizations network nonprofits so you have movements and we've been talking about the climate change movement the climate strike and that's a movement and it could be inspired by an individual or it's just something that uh uh, you know, that I don't want to use the word goes viral, but it is, it's really distributed kind of action and movement. That's on one end. On the other end, we have these hierarchical top-down command and control. I call them fortresses in the network nonprofit. And then somewhere in the middle, we could have nonprofits that are organizations, but that behave more like these decentralized movements. And that's adopting um, different mindsets and ways of working, um, being more transparent, being open, building relationships, um, being able, you know, the an innovation mindset, um, being able to, to, you know, fail quickly and adapt. Um, and, um, and I think that it's, you know, some organizations, especially ones that are founded more recently and by uh, individuals who are the leaders and the founders who are very comfortable with this way of working that creates that culture. And it's easy for them to do that. I think established organizations have to go through culture change. And we all know that, you know, it's like turning around the Titanic. It happens slowly. <laughs> Absolutely. And on, on that, that question, I'm interested in, this is something I've talked to other people about whether, at, you know, at a sector level, if you're trying to, to kind of grapple with bringing the nonprofit sector or, you know, the charity sector here in the UK, genuinely up to speed with technology are you know it's a question about whether it's better to work with the you know the existing leadership and try and kind of give them the knowledge and skills and confidence and risk tolerance they need or whether actually the the path of least resistance in some ways is to look to the the sort of next generation behind them who might find it much easier to to understand this stuff and kind of 
you know accept that that maybe in a few years time they will be in leadership positions and it you know it'll be a much more natural thing do you do you sort of see there being any trade-off there or do you think we can do both equally well well, I think it's definitely a both end because as younger leaders who are more comfortable or grow up with the tech come of age to lead nonprofits, maybe we won't need so much more education about mobile phone use and <laughs> yeah. you know networks because they've grown up with it, right? Um, I mean, they were probably uh, – I, I show this uh, cartoon that shows a woman getting a, son- a sonogram and the baby saying, hi, I'd like to connect – I'd like you to join my network yeah. on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so – I mean, think about it like kids who have now grown up in a generation of social networks and um, think about all. And for us, that was a new thing, you know, to to be able to stay connected with people that you met in kindergarten (laughs) all through your life, you know, for for better or worse. Um, So. So, yes, I think it's a both end because it's a transition as as generations change. There's, you know, different comfort levels with the the types of technology that you were brought up with and things that became a habit. But um, but also there's new things that are on the horizon. And maybe the younger people in the future are going to have to be educated by the next generation about whatever that is. And if we look ahead, you know, coming digital errors, we have, you know, going off planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the, the the generation beyond the generation will need to explain to our current generation about why that's important for nonprofits to think about. Yeah, God, that's <laughs> it's a scary thought. But yeah, that is true. I'll, I'll ask my kids about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of just, just building on, on that point a bit. Um, to, when thinking about kind of how to actually practically address, you know, some of the potential kind of, you know, digital skills deficit or kind of leadership issues or whatever that might be required for nonprofits or charities to to, to kind of get to grips with with technology, how how much of it do you think is actually about understanding or using the technology itself and and how much in your experience is more about much more pragmatic things to do with kind of working practices or you know employment or hr and actually making sure those are are set up right so that the sorts of people who want to work in those those kind of new more technologically enabled environments find it appealing and and actually have the freedom to to do you know to do what they they want to do with the tech yeah, you know, leadership sets the tone, right? Leaders leaders have great power. And, and my other work, um, the Happy Healthy nonprofit, which is about well-being in the workplace, that's all about culture. And and there, are, you know, I think if an organization wants to be able to like go through digital maturity, digital transformation, they have to have certain elements in their culture. You know, a lot of that's mindset um, before structural changes. It's like you have to be before you do. And there's, you know, silo bustings, having kind of an innovation mindset, you know, being able to be able to do low risk pilots and learn from them, having that adaptive culture, uh, that transparency and for leaders to kind of be comfortable with that in order to kind of lead that. And then you also and then once you have kind of the mindset and, and, and values around that established and it's the culture and it's the way you work, then you, then that filters down into those practical areas of hiring for cultural fit, you know, and, and for the way, and, um, and the way you actually do your work on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, um, but it starts at the top. 
Yeah, absolutely. On 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 some of that, if you've kind of get it right in terms of of the working practices, and, I, and I'm probably thinking here more with a view to you know emerging technology rather than than kind of uh, digital technology that's that's reasonably well established at this point. Do you think that we're going to be talking about trying to attract and retain people who actually have the sort of the tech skills to be you know developing machine learning systems or kind of building blockchains or whatever, or is that always going to be something that's unrealistic to expect to happen in the non-profit sphere? And actually, we need to be thinking more about how we kind of work in partnership with people with the technical skills. So everybody's kind of bringing, you know, the the best of what they have to offer to the party. Okay, that's a great question. I love this question. Okay, so one of the things I've seen so far in my unscientific study, some of the research I'm doing um, Except for really large organizations, particularly healthcare and international development, seem to be the sectors, maybe education, they will have in-house innovation labs, or maybe they've spun them off separately. And, uh, and that group is looking at, you know, of course, technology, integrating technology with programs and, um, and running experiments. And, and, and typically those units, if they're in-house, they work in partnership with other uh, departments, whether it's fundraising or programming. And they, so they're an interdisciplinary team and they tend to have, um, you might have strategists, you'll have data people, <laughs> a data scientist, um, et cetera. Um, uh, and someone who's experienced in maybe design thinking and innovation processes. And that unit works with other programs. And what I've seen in a lot of those in-house units is that even, and that's a big commitment, you know, um, even the people who are the data scientists, they tend to be more generalists because, you know, just take artificial intelligence. It's such a big field and so many subspecialties. I think it would, you'd have to be pretty well off to have specialists in each of those areas on, on, on um, staff. So you have a generalist who knows enough to be able to find the right technical specialists uh, for our collaboration. And that's where I think, you know, this AI for good area is so interesting. It's sort of at the sits at the intersection of big technology companies, you know, research labs and nonprofits. And you need to have both. You need to have that technical expertise and then you need to have the sector ex- expertise or, or, or uh, expertise around the problem that you're trying to solve with the tech. They go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us neatly onto another whole, whole big area I wanted to ask you about because we both got a kind of shared interest in artificial intelligence particularly, but kind of emerging tech and sort of what that means for for the nonprofit world. Um, picking up on what you were saying there about AI for good, I absolutely agree. I think there's some absolutely kind of amazing work being done and some fascinating projects. I guess my question or possibly challenge on it is, do, do you get any sense that actually in that AI for good world, there there is still a, a deficit in terms of more traditional nonprofits and civil society engaging or being in a position to sort of join those partnerships so that what you end up with is probably very well intentioned um, academics and kind of people from the tech sector not only doing the tech side but also kind of defining what the problems are and, and what counts as good and actually you know what you what's missing is the people who have really kind of granular knowledge of people and communities and the, the real world problems they face and that the danger is you end up slightly with kind of tech solutions in search of problems well i can only speak to maybe uh what's happening in the u.s and i don't think that's happening because i think um if you take a look um there was a report recently published by uh, google on their social impact um challenge 
they did an analysis of the 26 applications. It's really good because it, it, one of the things that they they did this for is that they wanted to like share a uh, kind of catalog of the different types of AI for good uh, projects that and the different types of AI that's being used to solve particular problems linked to certain data sets. And it's really fascinating. So it's in education, healthcare, uh, poverty reduction, uh, inclusion, um, uh, you know, along a whole wide variety of um, social good areas. And, um, and, but they also produced um, some challenges, talked about those. And, um, you know, aside, I was looking at it and I was thinking, well, like AI for good probably doesn't have the same issues as one does with just nonprofits adopting it, but they're there. Problems around having large enough data sets, um, uh, complete data sets, clean data sets, ethical challenges. Um, but the, the, the first big challenge, um, and they said it, is that uh, sometimes AI isn't the right solution. <laughs> so when they looked at the different applications, they felt like, well, this is an interesting project design, but, um, but it's probably maybe not the best use of AI. So one of their recommendations is that if you're starting an AI project, that you need to pressure test your concept with a, with a technical expert and really suss out as to, is this, is this the right thing to be using AI for? The other thing too, is that it, I think that uh, with AI, given how the technology works and given the scale of the problems that we want to solve is that we, it has, it, it's going to absolutely require working in a systems approach and collaborating across organizations and sharing knowledge versus a one up project. Yeah, you know, that makes absolute um, sense. Because as you say, I think if you approach it with that sort of uh, slightly old fashioned mindset of right, well, we've got a single organization, and somehow that's going to be able to solve problems of the scale of, you know, global climate change or, or kind of inequality, that's totally unrealistic. Um, just going back to something you was, you were saying there about, um, obviously, kind of one of the things that's absolutely fundamental to uh, AI and particularly kind of around the machine learning, the, the form of it that's that's driving a lot of the kind of uh, current um, you know interest in the area is is the necessity for very large data sets and also ones that are sort of sufficiently clean and coherent that you can you can train algorithms on them. Um, you know, you sort of mentioned there are a couple of areas in which uh, things like uh, healthcare and education, and to some extent, sort of the environment, I guess, where that data exists. Do you do you think that kind of there could be a slight data inequality for some nonprofits working on other areas where perhaps those data sets don't exist? And is is that something we kind of might need to think about at a sector level to try and address? Absolutely, because when you say Okay, so AI, as we both know, requires data, enormous data sets, clean data sets, relevant data sets, right? And we know that this has historically been a weakness of nonprofits. Nonprofits, I mean, not all, but in general, maybe don't have data collection plans or in-house data architects or analysts. And so the data that's collected is not, maybe not even in a digital form or it's incomplete. Um, and so... Um, and so here, and so there may be organizations that are working on certain issues that um, that just don't have good data capacity. So, so maybe as and and I'm seeing some of this right now with some organizations we talked to in their, our research is that they've had to first uh, build their data house, <laughs> you know, your 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 data architecture, um, your your database, and a plan for collecting it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's organizations. 
out there suddenly sort of focusing on that bit of it so kind of trying to get data scientists just to go in and do the slightly less glamorous work of trying to get nonprofits help them to sort of understand what data they have and and what they would need to do to get it into a form where it would actually be of use potentially in the future for uh for, for kind of applying machine learning techniques to it even you know even though they may not not end up doing that so i think or i think of um like crisis text line you might be familiar with them i know they're in the uk um nancy lublin is the uh, the founder or co-founder and she i i was interviewing the data scientist on on their staff bob uh philbin and he said to, you know and we were discussing this and he said well you know when our organization was conceived um uh nancy didn't just have a data scientist they actually have several but we also had a data engineer and i work in partner i've been working in partnership with that person to like build the the, the data infrastructure that we need in order to do um, all the things that we're uh, using algorithms to do in our in our in our project, so so I don't think there are a lot of organizations that have this kind of data first <laughs> orientation, and then having to go back and retrofit themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I, I think is interesting that came up in a, another conversation I was having with somebody, more coming from the angle of. Um, some of the the potential challenges around data and particularly around things like um, algorithmic bias or sort of historical statistical bias in data sets was somebody raising the idea that actually whilst it's obviously not easy for nonprofits to to get up to speed in terms of data requirements if they factor some of of uh, those issues into their thinking they could actually sort of overtake other organizations in terms of modeling a really ethical approach to data because you know as they're kind of getting their own house in order around data they can they can kind of make sure that they factor in the need to to check for for any of those biases when in, in the data sets and kind of when training algorithms which seemed to me a very kind of hopeful uh, vision because I kind of like the idea of civil society taking a, a lead on that I mean do you, do you think questions like that around data and things like bias in some of these systems are things that nonprofits are aware of or sort of starting to think about what role they need to play in relation to it's just a, I think embryonic I mean, I think we have to remember that algorithms are opinions disguised as code. I, I can't remember exactly who said that. I think I saw it on Twitter. And I said, yes, <laughs> algorithms are opinions disguised as code. And so who is coding, you know, and what is their experience and what is their framework and what is their context? And I think that's some of the problem um, in that, um, you know, biases happen when we're not aware of them, <laughs> Right. And, and even if it wasn't intentional, it happens. So, so, the, so it's not just, you know, I think with AI and, and, um, avoiding this problem, it's not just a technical problem. And that's why nonprofits need to be educated about it and, and participate in this. And that if they are doing a, a project that is using, you know, a, creating an algorithm to make choices around program delivery, um, or even fundraising that they that they do need to have a sort of ethical committee and and they need to um, to you know test you know test their code with uh, a different diverse set of uh, stakeholders to ensure that it to ensure equity and and also I think any AI project also needs to include a risk mitigation plan for potential areas of unintentional misuse whether that be algorithm bias or something more sinister. Yeah, absolutely. Because I guess you know, a, a lot of the stuff around algorithmic bias, as you say, is almost sort of 
unintentional it's not not deliberate bias it's just that it reflects the fact that unfortunately as humans historically we've had all sorts of biases and that's sort of written into the into the data but there are also kind of deliberate malicious uh, uses of this technology that you know one of my favorite examples of unintentional bias is that I was reading someplace where okay so uh, so algorithms especially for larger organizations that have to hire many they're starting to use algorithms to kind of evaluate the people that apply for the job and if those algorithms are being trained on their hiring practices in the past and those practices were subjective and biased in any way that they only hired a certain you know more men than women <laughs> or you know people from a particular school or whatever um, then that's going to show up in the algorithm right unless they've thought about that and they and they figure out how to train it in a different way with a different set of data. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes that, sense. I no, no, I, th- I think it's a really good example. And I guess the 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 good thing about that example, and I've seen somebody could put this into practice, and I can't remember which company it was, is that it kind of exemplifies that if you have uh, an algorithmic system that develops bias. You don't have to see yourself as sort of helpless and say, oh, well, well, that's terrible, but, you know, what can we do about it? Actually, the at that point, the choice you can make isn't just to sort of implement it anyway and, and sort of uh, you know, entrench the bias. Actually, you can say this is a useful tool for reflecting back on the biases we already always had. So actually, it can make our hiring practices in the future better because we're able to kind of correct for that sort of stuff. And I, I would sort of hope that that happens in all sorts of other areas as well. Well, it makes me think about one organization I recently interviewed. They were called the, um, I want to call it the Data Benefits Trust, and they're in Pennsylvania. And so they, they're a nonprofit, but um, so in the U.S. at the state level, people can get different benefits. You know, you can, you know, if you're under a certain income level, you can get um, into a program that helps you purchase food, um, fuel for your home, um, any number of, of, of benefits to help lift you out of poverty. Um, we call you know public welfare benefits, and so uh, applying for those programs can be really complicated, depending on what set of benefits you need. And so this organization has traditionally helped people through a call-in center, right? And so, so and the, over the not last number of years, they've built up a big database. So now they're looking at how can we use an algorithm to help people who might have these really super complicated. Uh, requests and applications to fill out, you know, that requires all this documentation. How can we use an algorithm to make that process more efficient for them? And also, how can we use an algorithm to help the person in the calling center identify and get this person help faster? And so they've, uh, uh, you know, as you can imagine, it's a sort of complicated and complex algorithm to design. And so they've had to test it against different characteristics to see, you know, before they put it into action. Like, how is this working? And it's kind of this iterative process of improving it to ensure that there's no bias. You know, are we leaving certain people out in certain communities? Are, you know, like who, you know, who is it helping to get to the front of the line? And is there, is there, are there people being left out based yeah. on our mathematical equations for our algorithm and based on our data set that we're training this algorithm on? Yeah, absolutely. I know. I think that's a really good example of, of kind of, how you can use the tool more intelligently rather than just feeling that we're we're sort of uh beholden to to do to just sort of set it off running and then and then implement whatever 
whatever it comes out with. Um, it, it almost sort of brings me on to something else I wanted to ask you about, because I think around the whole kind of feel of uh, field of AI for good, and probably more broadly tech for good, there's there's a lot of focus, understandably, on the, the kind of direct applications of some of these emerging technologies to to the mission or to the kind of social and environmental problems and, and loads of great examples where where you probably see less focus or at least you know as far as I'm aware is on some of the slightly less glamorous but equally important kind of ways in which you could impact on on the sort of operations of nonprofits themselves or kind of back office stuff um and have you have you seen sort of any interesting examples of you know AI or other kind of emerging tech being harnessed by you know, funders or nonprofits themselves to kind of improve the way they work not necessarily kind of implemented on a project basis Okay, so we're talking about internal. Yeah, I think internal, almost sort of back office stuff, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, One is the crisis text line, actually, I think has done a really great job because they are using the algorithm not to replace the counselors that are texting uh, with teens or young people in crisis, but to reduce the wait times for callers and to raise red flags for callers who are in immediate danger. And... um, And the other thing uh, that they also use it for, and this is not glamorous by any means, is that each of the counselors, they're communicating through text with somebody. They have to um, do a report after they've opened a case. And, you know, that can be really time consuming to go back through your text transcript and cut and paste it. They use a natural language um, programming um, code to actually create the report or first draft of the report right after the the, uh, case is finished. So that makes uh, it more efficient for the counselor and they can get on to helping the next um, person in line. Um, I've also seen it um, for a couple of the fundraising platforms that um, I'm thinking of global giving and they, um, when, when organizations set up a project, part of what they have to do is submit a report that goes out to all the donors that, um, that have helped them fundraise. And so this used to take an enormous amount of um, staff time to pour, read through each one of these reports. So they have a natural languaging filter that will, that identifies, um, I don't know if there's typos in the report or if there's profanity or, or if it's just incomplete uh, as a first step. And uh, we'll highlight, flag those for the humans to read first, and that makes them more efficient. Another example comes from Oxfam, Ameri- um, I think it's Oxfam. Um, and, and they, you know, it's such a huge organization with, you know, tens of thousands of staff members, and they have their own kind of internal jargon. Um, and so they have um, internal automation bots, and they have one called the jargon bot. So if, so, if, you're, <laughs> if you're working with something and a piece of internal jargon comes up and you want to know, oh, what does that mean? The jargon bot will help you suss it out and find the document or the information around it. So I thought that was pretty cool. And that makes people more efficient. Um, and that one's built over a Facebook workplace. Um, so... Uh, there's even bots that uh, are used to help with um, uh, workplace culture. And I love this one. Um, it's the uh, donut bot that's on Slack <laughs> that will help people in the organization. Um, it will randomly pair them up for coffee to get to know each people, each other. Uh, they use that at Lightful there in the UK. Uh, you know, as they're growing they're, and they have different departments, they're feeling like they don't 
have a chance to get to know new hires really well. So every once in, every so often, the donut butt suggests different pairings of people to have coffee together. Yes, I think um, Vinay Nair from Lightfall was was on the podcast a while back, and he was I was talk, talking to him about this, and he was saying, and I thought it was a great idea. So, um, and more broadly, I, I love those examples because I think the more examples of using uh, a technology like AI that I think seems a bit sort of you know forbidding to a lot of people in ways that are much more sort of straightforward and obvious and kind of address you know workplace issues and efficiencies and things. I think as as a kind of accessible entry point would really help a lot of people kind of think, okay, this is what the technology is and what it can do before they have to kind of uh, necessarily engage with it on the the kind of you know system systems level. And also, to, to be honest, I've spent time in rooms with finance directors trying to convince them of the need to engage with uh, with sort of emerging technology. And I can imagine this kind of example would would help quite a lot more than some of the ones that I've been giving them. So um, I, I wanted to ask a, a little bit uh, more just about. You know, specifically around chatbots and conversational AI, because I know this is an area that you, you've looked at in particular. And you mentioned some really good uh, examples there of the way it had been used sort of by, by different organizations to, to improve their own processes. Um, more broadly, kind of what, what's your take on the kind of current state of, of um, adoption of chatbots by nonprofit organizations or kind of the ones that are being provided by commercial organizations but have a charitable um, element to them. So I'm thinking there of sort of the ability to give via kind of um, yeah, voice assistance and that kind of thing. Oh, yes. You know, I think, and this is unscientific uh, uh, <laughs> opinion. I'd love to do a study on this um, more comprehensive. But I think chatbots have been more uh, easily and more readily adopted by the nonprofit sector only because the technology has gotten more accessible and we have chat authoring programs and it makes it easy to create a simple bot. And I'm thinking about uh, the climate reality bot, for example, that it's connected to Facebook Messenger and it just is there to uh, get um, people who ask questions to get them to the right information and to get them to sign up for alerts. And it was done with um, many chat. Um, uh, Direct Relief um, is another example. And and they started with um, uh, two years ago, uh, they do a humanitarian aid when there's, you know, a crisis and they were helping with uh, Hurricane Harvey with the extensive flooding that was happening down in uh, Texas. And what happened is, you know, they have one social media person on their staff and they were getting flooded with messages, no no pun intended, uh, during the hurricane. Um, And that person couldn't keep up. So they, so they said, well, if we had a bot, this could really help us scale, not eliminate people's connection to humans, but to really get them to the information they need faster. And that could save lives and to get them to a human faster if they need it. So they, said, okay, so let's try a prototype of this. And they did build a prototype on chat fuel. Uh, it was, and, it, and it forced them to really examine like what information processes and content are we sharing and what's the process. And, and so they did that and they found um, that it worked. Um, and then that's when they did the next step, which was to, they decided they needed something more elaborate and more sophisticated. And then they started working with a, a, a chatbot developer. So they could do something uh, with some natural language programming and something that could scale more. And then that uh, developer released something called Charity Bots. I don't know if you've seen it. It's um, it's basically a set of templates that nonprofits can use to more easily implement a more sophisticated bot. Um, the other 
but, but that I saw and it's still in development yet, um, is from one of the United ways. I did a, a webinar a couple weeks ago and the, the, the bot's name is Carla and it stands for something not so sexy, <laughs> but basically again, it's for disaster relief and they're working with IBM Watson. And so they had to go through a whole process of figuring out, you know, what's the intent of the bot and, and doing something, engage in something known as, um, agentative <laughs> design. You might be familiar with Chris Nussel's book. And that's, you know, the design of chatbots is different than designing a web interface, right? Because, or think about like a robot vacuum versus a real vacuum where you have, you know, a real vacuum or a, a traditional vacuum, the user is using it, but the robot has to like anticipate what the user's intent is to clean up the dirt, <laughs> right? So they have to program it and anticipate what the human wants and then also how to disengage with the human and disengage the um, automation. So it's a slightly different way of um, thinking about user interface design. So that's sort of a, a, a you know a growing area when we want to design chatbots. We have to think you know they're intelligent agents, and it's this agentative design. Yeah, it's a fascinating new field, and I guess yeah that predictive element because for it to work and not be unbearably clunky, it has to have a reasonable chance or at least narrow down to a few options what it thinks you're uh, going to want next so that it can kind of be in a position to to offer you the the information um it has I'm, to be iterative too yeah very iterative like testing and being ex like this particular one named carla they we had to they called it socializing <laughs> the agent we you know it's really interesting it was happening down in new orleans and and there may be people there who speak cajun hmm. so does carla speak cajun well she can as, as long as she's socialized with that and trained to do it. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that we're in danger of running long and I'm going to take up altogether too much of your time. So I've just got a couple of, of things that I uh, wanted to, to ask you before I, I let you go. Um, one was coming right back to, to something that we sort of mentioned earlier, partly kind of about um, social media, but also kind of the work that you've done thinking about um, uh, around kind of happy, healthy nonprofit and, and and sort of workplace well-being and that kind of thing. Um, one of the the things I'm I find really interesting is that the you know the early days of social media were relatively utopian. I mean, it seemed like a sort of incredible, empowering tool. But as time's gone on, I think people have become aware that there's there's a sort of less wholesome side to it, and particularly around that idea of you know, it's kind of created an attention economy where there are all these sort of perverse incentives to to create, you know, more more extreme content or to to kind of uh, get a, get rid of nuance uh, in in order to kind of grab people's attention and hold it. Do you think that is a challenge for organisations that are trying to get their message across if they're trying to cut through in that world where attention is really scarce? And particularly, do you think there's a sort of danger that you? not you know the temptation for nonprofits is to kind of use techniques and tools that they know work but also we kind of increasingly know aren't especially great from the sort of long-term point of view of everybody's mental health and well-being okay so there's a couple ways to go with this <laughs> mm. so one is this kind of like um two way when i think of the attention economy i think of two things so i think externally with um for lack of a better word some campaigns kind of are cheesy and pro provocative just to catch attention and sort of I'm kind of wrapped trying to wrap my brain around. Okay. Well, and one example I think is, I, I don't want to name the organization, but um, 
uh, was on World Toilet Day. Hmm. And it was like, give a shit, share your shit. And you had to share it. I'm sorry. I don't know if I should say that or not. That's um, absolutely fine, um, yeah. They, yeah. Wait, they we used all the do word it. It's poop. fine. <laughs> yeah, and they use the word poop. Share yeah. a poop emoji, emoji. And so it was clever and it got a lot of attention. Um, and then there was a, a one recently that um, – that was a, uh, a Jewish nonprofit that was trying to reach out to uh, Jews that were not connected, you know, around the high holidays. And they were very sort of sexy type of um, messaging. <laughs> yeah. Something. So you eat bacon. God has more things to worry about. And, and, and it goes sort of got criticized for being a little bit too provocative. So mm. we, you know, have that. But on the other hand, I think, you know, you have to have a way to connect with people and capture attention of the right people. And that's where I think artificial intelligence is really going to he- um, help because it's going to allow us to really customize our messaging and our approach with donors at scale um, and maybe not have to resort to cheesiness <laughs> unless, of course, um, it, it is appropriate to capture that one person's attention. Now, the other way I think about attention economy is this whole I- area that we know what's been going on is that um, the big tech companies have been adine, um, designing for addiction to capture us and suck us in and, and then sell our eyeballs to the highest bidder on advertising. And that's, I know that's kind of a pessimistic way to look at it, but tech can be addicting and it can be habit forming. And we have to practice what I call technology wellness and really understand our relationship with technology and our habits. And especially in an organizational context, you know, where technology removes the borders of the nine to five workday and we can be sending emails after hour and causing staff to work 24 seven. Um, so we really have to step back and think about technology wellness for ourselves and also in the organizational context. Um, that's the next fit disruptive phase <laughs> after artificial intelligence is, is modern well-being, which is the, oddly the use of technology to help us be well. And it covers this technology addiction area, but also kind of how can technology help us be healthier? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I think, you you know, it's definitely something that, you know, nonprofits and charities will need to kind of grapple with themselves over coming years in terms of their own workforces. And also, I guess, kind of more widely, there'll be a question for a lot of them about what role they need to play in sort of helping you know the the people and communities that they're they're there to serve with with similar challenges. So I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of how quickly quickly they kind of um, get to grips with that issue. Um, I suppose it's it's slightly linked in some ways. But the 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 last question I wanted to ask, I guess uh, maybe this is a bit unfair because <laughs> it's one of those big predictive questions. But I just wanted to get a sense of you know what your take on uh, what the sort of non-profit workplace is going to look like in 10 or 15 years time what do you think are kind of going to be the the big shifts in terms of of how we work and and the sorts of work we're doing okay so um the robots are not going to take our jobs i don't think um because <laughs> we don't pay them enough in the nonprofit sector. No, that's that's right. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, but I think um, I'm for human augmentation. So that's like uh, the robots or the bots or this technology becomes a part of our team. It takes up all the grunt work, the tedious work, and the things that humans can't do, like um, analyze huge data sets at scale. Um, but it, it frees up our time to be more innovative, to build relationships with stakeholders, um, et cetera. So I'm hoping that we will be able to solve more problems <laughs> because of, of this partnership with automation and, and humans. In order for this to work, I think 
a lot of the shifts that we hope would happen with social media and are happening to some degree will also continue to take place. And that's, you know, from siloed work to interdisciplinary collaboration. So I think AI has the biggest impact when it's developed by cross-functional teams with a mix of skills and perspectives. So, so this more unsiloed work. Um, I think another shift, and it's something we hope it's happening now. We hope it'll happen more, but um, a shift from experience-based to leader-driven decision-making to more data-driven decision-making at the front line. You know, a lot of decisions sometimes are made, you know, by, oh, this is what I think we should do, not necessarily based on data. One example could be, oh, we designed our late, uh, our landing page for our fundraising campaign because we took a look at what five other nonprofits were doing and we copied them. Not necessarily about looking at, oh, well, what will cause the most conversions? Um, and then, of course, this one, my favorite, I've been saying this for 25 years, and maybe I'll say it for another 25 years, um, uh, going from rigid and risk-adverse to agile, experimental, and adaptable cultures. I think it's absolutely going to be necessary um, because uh, AI has the potential to be most transformative but realizing its benefits requires time-consuming, complementary innovations and investments like uh, processes, new business models, and um, ethical policies. Great. Well, yeah, that's that's a good answer to a slightly unfair question. Um, listen, it's been absolutely great having you on on the show, Beth. Um, before I go, I'll put links to sort of um, various things you've mentioned in the show notes. But is there anything you'd like to flag up for anybody listening that you're working on at the moment that you particularly like to direct people towards? Um, well, sure. But right now I'm actively uh, working on a research paper for the Gates Foundation on uh, the use of AI to scale intelligence. I am actively blogging. I, I, uh, Allison Fine and I are working on the Gates paper. We've also just sent a paper over to N10, which is the Nonprofit Technology Network, on uh, sort of an introduction to AI for nonprofits. That should be published um, shortly. Uh, but the best place is to uh, www.bethcantor.org and also find me on Twitter at Cantor. So I also regularly tweet out links. Love to talk to people about these topics. And thank you so much. It's been a delight. I can't believe that, that our time has gone so fast. It's just been so much fun to talk to you. Oh, great. Well, no, it's been it's been lovely having you on the show. Thanks for for managing to to find the time. Um, and maybe you know, given the pace at which these things uh, move ahead, maybe in a in a year or so's time, we can reconvene. I can get you back on the podcast and see how some of this right, stuff can played laugh out. At our questions, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Great. All right. Take care. Okay, great. Uh, well, thanks again to Beth for coming on the podcast. Uh, as you can tell, you know it was a, a fascinating conversation for me. I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to lots of the things that Beth was talking about and some sort of relevant stuff that I've worked on. Um, if you're interested kind of more broadly in issues around uh, tech and civil society or just kind of more broadly uh, philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or Philiteracy, which is where I do my kind of more uh, long form stuff about history of philanthropy and books about philanthropy um, if you've got ideas for other people that we could interview on the show uh, or topics that we could cover uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org other than that just like subscribe tell all of your friends about it uh, give us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next time okay bye <laughs>